Redbox Media Programming is brought to you by... We've got good news. The world is open again, and people like you, people of faith, are traveling to Catholic sites around the world. Want to travel with exceptional Catholic leaders this fall, next year, or in the future? Are you looking to see specific sites, celebrate traditional Latin Mass, or travel to destinations without vaccine requirements? We are here to help you deepen your faith on pilgrimage. Give us a call at 1-800-842-4842 or visit us online at selectinternationaltours.com. Select International Tours is your pilgrimage company, and we have the perfect Catholic trip for you. Are you looking to serve God and society? Consider putting your gifts to work as a lawyer. Ave Maria School of Law has been educating faith-filled lawyers for over 20 years. Ave Maria School of Law is committed to training lawyers to use law appropriately around the moral issues of our time. Visit AveMariaLaw.edu to learn more about integrating your faith with a law degree. Welcome back to Off the Shelf here on Breadbox Media. I'm your host, Pete Sox, a Catholic book blogger, and today we have with us Rod Bennett. He's the author of Four Witnesses, The Early Church in Her Own Words, widely considered to be a modern classic of Catholic apologetics, continuously in print for the last 20 years, and a life-changing watershed for hundreds of spiritual inquirers. He also is a familiar voice on Catholic media outlets, such as Ave Maria Radio, and on popular programs like Catholic Answers Live, and Marcus Grodi's Journey Home. Rod's other books include The Apostasy That Wasn't, The Christus Experiment, and Scripture Wars. A convert from evangelical churches, Rod joined the Catholic Church in 1996. He lives in the Great Smoky Mountains of Tennessee with his wife of 30 years, Dorothy. And today, we'll be discussing his latest book, These Twelve, The Gospel Through the Apostles' Eyes. Welcome back to the show, Rod. Hi, Pete. Very nice to speak with you again. Alrighty, so... As I mentioned, you've written a number of books on the early church, as many can probably tell by the titles and who are familiar with their stuff. What brought you to write this particular book? Well, one of my publishers called and said, Rod, have you got a book about the Twelve Apostles? And I said, you know, I think I do have one of those in mind. So (laughs) (laughs) it just happens that uh, I had been stewing on uh, a project called These Twelve, as far back as the early 80s, when I was, wow. uh, when I was still a uh, an evangelical Christian. So, uh, yeah, this one had a long genesis, but uh, it, it was actually begun as a book uh, at somebody else's suggestion. <laughs> so what keeps bringing you back to that particular time, the early church? Well, uh, Four Witnesses uh, has been kind of a hit, put me on the map, I suppose you would say, <laughs> and uh, uh, and as a result, I get ta- I get asked to talk about the uh, early fathers a lot. I have other ideas and other interests, but <laughs> I guess <laughs> I guess the early fathers were my uh, speciality at this point. So, being that that's kind of your speciality in the arena you're writing, because people keep asking you to do it. Why do you find it important for us to fully understand what the apostles and their immediate successors had to say about uh, various issues, particularly in our upside-down society today? 
Well, you know, uh, Catholics uh, and other types of Christians too, when they can, uh, say the Nicene Creed, they uh, they confess a belief in one holy Catholic and Apostolic Church, mm-hmm. and uh, it's right there at the heart of our faith. And yet, a lot of people, including the lifelong Catholics, uh, sometimes say it by habit and and don't really think about in what sense our church is apostolic. Uh, why that's one of the foundations of uh, of the Catholic Church, and uh, it's something that needs to be thought about more deeply and uh, and considered more carefully. The nature of the Church is apostolic. That is, well, a good way to put it is that uh, when St. John sees a vision of uh, the New Jerusalem, the uh, new city of God in heaven in the book of Revelation, he sees that the names of the twelve apostles are written on the foundations of the holy city the heavenly new jerusalem which uh, is a pretty amazing thing the uh if anything you know the idea that the 12 apostles uh, have an important role that's actually a foundational role literally their names are on the foundation so mm-hmm. uh you know and it must have been quite a a, a shock or a, a a bit a bit of a, a pleasant sight i don't know humbling for St. John to see his own name written there, too. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things I I take out of when from reading this book and other books about the um, Twelve Apostles is that they were extraordinarily brave men, and I often envision them uh, being present today and maybe scratching their heads at some of the actions of some of their successors through the centuries. Well, keep in mind, these men saw Judas Iscariot uh, uh, do, you know, there were only 12 at that point. Indeed. Only 12 leaders and, uh, and bishops at that point. But uh, uh, he, uh, they, they, right there at the beginning, one out of 12 went bad. So I don't think it would have surprised them or startled them as much as we might imagine, <laughs> having experienced uh, something like that themselves. Good point. Um, I think it's also important to realize that these men weren't necessarily scholarly men. I mean, they were pretty much all of them were average men of the day who had obviously no seminary to form them other than the teachings that Christ gave them. And yet here they were converting thousands from all corners of the known world right after the church was left to them to carry on. Well, you, you make an important point that they were lowly people. They weren't upper class people or, uh, you know, they were working class stiffs, so to speak, mm-hmm. and uh, peasant people. But then again, so was our Lord. In other words, he was not a man with a, a philosophical pedigree, and he was born under lowly circumstances uh, to people that didn't have enough money to to, uh, uh, to do much of, uh, provide much for him. He grew up in the same kind of rural setting that the, uh, that the Twelve did also. So, yes, the Twelve were lowly and humble, but not in any sense that wouldn't have been equally applicable to our Lord himself. One of the things that, one of the great discoveries that I made while researching this book is the degree to which uh, the early fathers would have found the way that we sometimes talk today about the apostles to be puzzling, if not a little bit off-putting. They, for example, would have seen something that that often escapes you and I and and used to escape me until I uh, got a different perspective from them and that is that these 12 had gotten or at least at least some of them had gotten the very pos- the very best possible training uh, in religion before they were turned over to our Lord's discipling and that is 
that we know for a fact that at least four of them were disciples of St. John the Baptist before they were disciples of Christ. Mm -hmm. And there are good indications that as many as seven of them had that, uh, uh, had that experience. That is, their training had a B.C. and an A.D. to it. Mm -hmm. uh, Jesus said that uh, among all those born of, uh, of women, there is none greater than John the Baptist. And he affirms that of all the prophets, of all the Old Testament prophets, St. John was the greatest. So uh, think about that from the uh, uh, new perspective of the apostles having spent the first part of their training with the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. And then the second half of their training with the uh, our Lord himself, the, mm -hmm. uh, the, 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 the uh, God man. So they actually had the best possible training uh, that could have been given to people uh, who were given the job they were. It's also been a little overstated that uh, uh, there are mistakes in their, their foibles, the, uh, the examples that are usually given of their uh, fallibility before they receive the Holy Ghost has been a little overstated. Uh, it's not untrue that they sometimes ask a question out of turn or they sometimes have to be a little rebuked by the, the Lord. But some of those things, according to the early fathers, actually had a, had a, a, a perfectly sensible uh, explanation that we're missing because of our 2020 hindsight. Mm -hmm. For example, when the... Uh, when the apostles seemed to be arguing over who would be who would sit at Jesus's right hand in the new kingdom, what what the exact uh, chain of command or pecking order would be, that's often been interpreted as uh, uh, you know selfish ambition and all the rest of it. But several of the early fathers say, keep in mind, they don't know quite, they don't understand quite so, what sort of Messiah they're dealing with yet. Mm -hmm. The Old Testament has just as many prophecies of a military messiah uh, who really will raise an army and all the rest of it. Uh, Jesus himself says that he will sit on the throne of his father, David. So David was a man of war. David was very much a, a, a this-worldly king. And uh, whether that particular prophecy applies to Jesus or exactly how it applies to it, they're not certain yet. So in trying to work out... Uh, uh, the organization of an army that's coming in that they think might be coming into being with themselves as the officers of it uh, is not at all an unreasonable thing to be doing. Mm -hmm. And this is the sort of thing you get when you look at the perspective, that very, very early perspective of the, the early fathers who uh, would have been very surprised and taken back to, uh, to hear so many of our homilies about the apostles these days, mm -hmm. which tend to sometimes to make them the comedy relief of the piece, you know. Yeah. That they're uh, bumbling or, uh, you know, uh, don't know what they're talking about a lot of the time. Right. And it's real. You bring up a valid point is how our perspective changes um, when we're looking at it backwards and the fact that our society has greatly changed uh, in style of living and, and uh, right, various right, right. commodities we have available to us compared to what the apostles had. Right. It's, it's just interesting to, as always, to get the perspective of the early fathers, which is often quite different than uh, later perspectives, not all of which are unorthodox, but it's just interesting to get uh, a, an earlier uh, viewpoint from closer to the source. You know, many of these early fathers were actual disciples of the apostles. Mm -hmm. Clement of Rome, for example, we think he was baptized by Peter himself. 
And uh, Irenaeus was a disciple of Polycarp, who was one of St. John, the apostles' uh, trainees. So uh, uh, going back that close to the fountain uh, is valuable for getting mm-hmm. uh, 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 earlier perspectives on, uh, on matters like this. Now, early in the book, you brought up uh, John the Baptist, and, and in that chapter, you also talk about uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. I want to touch upon them a bit. Um, what can we learn from them, and how and why must we approach them carefully? Well, they were cert- they were not written by Christians. This is pre-Christian uh, uh, material. Uh, it, they were written by a group of uh, men who seemed to be specially focused on looking out for Messiah, being ready and watchful and waiting for the Messiah to come. And they, they, they seem to believe that was the whole task of Israel uh, in those years uh, immediately prior to the advent of Christ. And that they were right. They were absolutely correct in this. Uh, one of the reasons we think that John the Baptist may have been an Essene at one time, uh, the, the Essenes, by the way, in case I missed or missed pointing it out, are believed to be the people who, uh, uh, who left the library that was found uh, as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, John the Baptist, we're told in the Gospels, did his preaching just a few miles from where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found so many centuries later, and that many of the messages of, of John have great similarities to what the Essenes uh, were teaching. Uh, the reason why we think that John broke with the Essenes, and that we do have to be a little cautious uh, about uh, how we digest the Essene message, the message in the Dead Sea Scrolls, is that the Essenes, had, ten- uh, alas, had tended to become kind of ingrown. They were not interested in uh, uh, trying to save the pagans or the, the, uh, the Romans or any foreigners. They were very in-house, and they didn't believe that other groups were pure enough to receive the message of Messiah. This is how John, this is the way that John the Baptist uh, made an improvement over them. If he actually was part of their community at one time, he uh, seems to have left to create a purer, more uh, authentic version of their message. So, uh, uh, but this, the many of the teachings of Christianity are prefigured in things that the Essenes believed and taught. And uh, so there is a continuity between uh, John the Baptist and the apostles that he made, the disciples that he made, and then the, the uh, further uh, uh, training that the apostles received under uh, the blessed uh, Son of God himself. Mm-hmm. Another area of focus on in the book, and, and uh, it's just as important as the original 12, and that's the role of Mary. You focus on her a bit about the wedding feast of Cana. But what, what role did Mary play in the early church? And that was not only the formative years of Jesus' ministry, but after? Well, a lot of the uh, things about Christ, the early stories about the nativity, the visitation, all the other early stories, uh, it's been said many times by many different writers that the, all, the those must have been related by Mary herself because she was the only human person there. She was the only human person present at the Annunciation and mm-hmm. some of those other great events. But but the many of the early events in the life of our Lord were things that she was a particular witness to. So in her own way, she was a disciple. She was there for, uh, and an apostle. She was there from the beginning of uh, our Lord's earthly sojourn. So uh, 
she and and so because of that she must be the source of much of the material that we uh we read uh about the behind the scenes of you know the flight into egypt and the uh the finding of christ amongst the doctors and all the rest of it mary mary is really the only uh rational uh way of figuring unless it was for some special revelation by an angel and there's no reason to think that must be the case probably the apostles spent time with uh, our lady and you would you would think that they would there's good reasons to think that many of the apostles uh were actually blood relations of both christ and mary cousins and uh, nephews and things of that type mm-hmm. that there's a pretty good uh uh interconnectedness of those families so as a result uh Mary might have been uh, an old uh, blood relation of several of the apostles, in which case all of this, all of this, these stories about the early days of, of Jesus's arrival uh, would have been kind of a shared family history. So that's uh, a way in which Mary became a conduit for uh, some of the important facts about, uh, about our Lord's life on earth. There's an interesting, in your last chapter of The Greater Works, I always find that interesting to somewhat um, wrap my mind around sometimes, and that's this quote from John 14, 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I go to the Father. So there's the Lord openly telling everyone that those after him will do greater works than he, and that to me sometimes is hard to wrap my mind around. (laughs) <laughs> well, keep in mind, it's not really a competition. So. Yes, agreed. <laughs> but, but, I, but I will say this. The Lord makes the closest possible connection between himself and his church. In other words, it is Christ, the power of Christ, that's doing all the works, both before and after. And uh, uh, so, you know, he, he's, telling the, uh, uh, he's telling the facts of the matter uh, from one particular point of view. In one sense, everything that the church does is done by Christ. He's, we're the body of Christ. And uh, so, but uh, he, he had something important to say here. It's very easy to verify that the apostles did the same works that he did. In the book of Acts uh, and elsewhere in the uh, scriptures, we see that they raised the dead and, and made the blind to see and the lame to walk and all the rest of it. The, the continuity between and and this began before uh, before uh, Christ's ascension. Uh, you know, at not long after they were chosen, they were given the power to go out and uh, cast out devils and heal the sick, etc. So that it that's something that began very quickly and early in their ministry, and didn't have to wait until the day of Pentecost. But uh, so it's very easy to verify. Scripture is full of apostolic miracles, uh, but the. Uh, uh, the greater works is the thing that sometimes causes people to scratch their heads. I will say that the best explanation, that uh, uh, the, the commonest explanation that the church fathers give, beyond uh, pointing out a few things like uh, that uh, Peter's, uh, we're, it's, we're told that Peter's shadow passing over somebody sometimes uh, caused a, a miraculous healing, something that's not really recorded of Christ himself. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, uh, but they usually get quickly to the idea that that the conversion of the world is the great miracle. Jesus, uh, you know, when he made his sacrifice on the cross, he had a handful of followers around him. And uh, he, he didn't see a great harvest of souls within his own lifetime on earth. 
uh, uh, the the great explosion of 2,000, 4,000, and then later on many millions of people baptized and many and souls saved and stuff with something that has been reserved to the apostles and to their successors, the bishops, and to the uh, lay people that their gifts are also handed down to. So uh, the, the sense that Christ uh, planted a seed, but he didn't get to see while on earth uh, the tree sprout the gigantic tree that came from that tiny seed is the sense that most uh, uh most interpreters uh mm-hmm. put on his words that the greater works the conversion of the world is the greatest work then in his eyes and that's something that the apostles brought about and and uh not christ himself directly right. while with us in the flesh so in our noisy society uh driven by sound bites opinions and frankly some days it seems rage some some may feel that the best option is to isolate themselves and just shut the whole world out and be on their own. What can we learn from these 12 and their direct followers about going out and bringing light to an otherwise dark world? Well, it is true that uh, there have been followers of Christ through the ages that uh, were called to uh, a particular consecrated life, maybe in a monastery or a hermitage or some other things like that. We don't totally rule out the idea of the Christian called to a solitary life of prayer. Mm-hmm. But this is very much the exception. In church history, as well as uh, uh, just in theory, the, uh, uh, the apostles were told very clearly, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature, baptize them, and then teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. That's the Great Commission. It's, multi- it's in multiple parts. But none of it involves uh, a every man is an island approach to things. You have a we have a commission. Well, as Saint John Paul the Great said, uh, he said uh, every Christian has both the right and the duty to evangelize. Mm-hmm. The duty to evangelize. The uh, that great commission is specially to the apostles, but by extension to us also. It does apply to all Christians. We have a right and a duty to go into all the world, to preach the gospel to every creature, to baptize. These days it's done uh, usually through the officers of the church. And to teach uh, the world what the commandments of Christ are. That is a, a, a job that Christ gave to all of his disciples. And it cannot be lived as a solitary you know, get off my lawn kind of uh, uh, lifestyle. It just simply can't be done, and any attempt to do it is an act of disobedience to the express will of uh, the Lord Christ. Rod, great book. Where can people find these 12, The Gospel Through the Apostles' Eyes? Well, it's available at all the usual online sources, but I would suggest that maybe you go directly to catholic.com, our friends at Catholic Answers, the book's published by Catholic Answers Press. You can get it direct from the source. Excellent. Rod, I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your day and spending it with us. Any closing thoughts? Well, I've enjoyed my time here. Uh, uh, I guess it's a commercial for the book, but if these things are intriguing, so you do get the book. There's a lot more to it than this, and I've worked really hard to put in fresh things that maybe you haven't heard from all of us before, so you might get a, a, a Renew your peace a little bit by uh, experiencing uh, the gospel. Yeah. 
back. You've been listening to Off the Shelf. I'm your host, Pete Sox, a Catholic book blogger. Until next time, God bless.